0: Okay, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 6, and just a very quick recap in case you've missed the last several chapters, and uh, from chapter 1 we saw the Holy Ghost was mentioned five times, and the ministry of the Holy Ghost was of course to testify to the world that they are sinners, to put sinners into the body of Christ, and to draw all men under the triune God. Five times he's mentioned. And yet Muslims will tell you. That the Holy Spirit found explicitly in the word of God. Is in reference to Muhammad. Which of course is ridiculous. On top of that we saw from Acts chapter 1. How the Lord Jesus Christ was carried up into heaven. And that was also found in Luke 24. And of course Dr Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. And Acts of the Apostles. And I think it's quite possible that. At least one angel carried him up into heaven. It could be either Michael or Gabriel. And we also discover from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 how when the Lord comes back to meet his church in the air, in space, he leaves heaven with the shout of the archangel. So it's very interesting to read these verses very carefully. From chapter 2, verse 11, we saw at least, I think, nine groups of people that were in Jerusalem. It says how Jews from every part under heaven were present during the launch of Pentecost, the launch of the church, the birth of the church, and one group that were Pentecost were the Arabians, Gentile proselytes to Judaism. And that shows me very clearly that a good 600 years before the birth of Muhammad, you've got a group of Arabians in Jerusalem that are hearing the gospel preached to them. And it's quite possible, if not rather probable, that some of those Arabians got saved, and went back to their parts of the Middle East and explained to their friends and families the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and that shows you how quickly the gospel spread very much like wildfire we saw from chapter 3 verse 24 how Samuel is cited as one of the prophets who was uh, put forward by Peter to declare that the Lord was going to come And it's interesting that Peter starts with Samuel, and it came to me last night why he starts with Samuel, because Samuel was the prophet that first of all saw the first king of Israel, and he was told to anoint Saul, of course, and Saul Saul, wasn't the Lord's first choice. In fact, he wanted to continue to reign over the people of Israel, but the people of Israel said, no, we want a king to rule over us, we want a king to go out and fight our battles, we want a king that we can look up to. And you think of the Catholic Church, how they want their pope to fight their battles for them. They want a figurehead, a literal figurehead. And of course, we don't have a figurehead at this ministry. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our high priest and king. But Samuel was grieved and he says to the Lord, they have rejected you. Uh, it's, it's breaking my heart. And the Lord says, yes, that's true. But they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They have rejected me. But go off and explain to them the consequences of rejecting myself and that pictures the Jews of the old covenant rejecting God the Father whereas the Jews of the new covenant are going to reject God the Son and that's why I think Peter is citing Samuel who oversaw the great apostasy and yet after anointing Saul he is given the opportunity to anoint King David a man after God's own heart so it's very interesting how Peter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is explaining to the Jews why this has occurred and what do they say The one thing that men never learn from history is that men never learn from history. But it's tragic to see the Jews back in the old covenant rejecting God the Father. And here their spiritual children are rejecting God the Son. Also from chapter 4 verse 2, the term preached through Jesus, a very interesting expression. And if you cross reference that to John 14, 6, No man cometh unto the Father but by me or through me. It does demonstrate the exclusivity of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may think you have the truth. You may have a burning bosom or burning sensation in your bosom. You may be part of a system or religion which thinks they are correct. But the truth of the matter is there is a way which seems right unto a man. But the ends thereof are the ways of death. You might think you have the truth but examine yourself. And that's why Peter told us in uh, chapter 4 verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You can't miss it. There's only one way to be saved, and that's to a sinless man. That sinless man, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then last time we ended off in Acts chapter 5, very sad accounts of a couple of saved people, a husband and wife team. And after reading the first five chapters of Acts this morning and last night, I think it's rather clear to me that Peter knew that Sapphira would be cut down dead the moment she too lied like her husband had done. He gave her the chance to come clean along with her husband, but she decided to continue in this conspiracy, and the minute she finishes lying to Peter, the young men arrive, find her dead, and they take her forth and bury her by her husband. And we can't say whether they dug Sophia's plot at the same time, the text doesn't tell us that, but nevertheless, it's my understanding that at the moment she lied to Peter, he knew what was going to occur, And she's cut down dead in her prime. And that shows again how holy the Lord is. How the Lord will not tolerate sin of any kind. And that would have sent shockwaves to the early church. So chapter 5 will end with the death of two people. And chapter 6 going into chapter 7 will also mark the church's first martyr. But let's start today's broadcast if you may. And we hope the Lord will bless this broadcast. And it will be a great blessing to those that are listening to this around the world. And let's start, if we may, in verse 1. And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Disciple is simply in reference to a believer, whereas an apostle is in reference to an eyewitness of the Lord's ministry. An apostle was somebody that saw the Lord, and an apostle was somebody who had the supernatural Jewish uh, works, miracles, Healings, visions, so on and so forth. But a disciple is simply somebody who has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is very interesting. It says how there arose a murmuring from the Grecians against the Hebrews concerning their widows who had been neglected in the daily ministration. Up until this point, we have been told by Doctor Luke that there is around eight thousand saved men and women. But let's not negate the children. And it's quite possible that you are looking at around 20,000 people that are now saved in this early point in the history of the church. And if you go back to the Gospels, the Lord fed one group of people, 5,000, and another group of people, 4,000. And again, that just includes the men. If you had the women and the children, you're looking at about 20,000. And here, this church is growing so fast, so quickly, and to think within four, five chapters, the church has gone from one hundred and twenty to 20,000. And yet, if you go back to the roots of Islam, it starts with the sword, and it ends with the sword, and I'll come back to Islam a little later. But I'm very interested in this expression, this term, the Grecians, complaining against the Hebrews, concerned their widows, who were neglecting the their daily ministration. That's why Ananias and Sapphira, and others, of course, were selling their properties to give to the apostles to feed those that were in need. There's no welfare during this time in the early church's history. And on top of that, they don't want to be a burden. They don't want people to be relying on the Jewish leaders who, of course, have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ and are going to persecute the Jewish apostles. So this is going to build up to, what do we do? How do we take care of our own? And you were told from First Timothy that if you don't provide for your own home, you're worse than an infidel. So this early church is going to do great things for their men and women, and I think that charity starts at home. I do believe that. You know, People come up to us on the streets and they say, we are hungry, and we say, come back in an hour or two hours or three hours' time and we'll give you some food. We never give people money because sometimes that money will go on drink, or drugs, or cigarettes, but we will buy people food if they are needful of that. Good verse 2, please. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them, and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. That term, serve tables, gives a picture of the apostles, twelve of them, almost being like waiters waiting on this group of people, widows to be precise, from verse 1. And of course the apostles were... A unique group of men. They weren't sinless. They weren't above reproach. They weren't uh, exempt from serving. And the Lord made that very clear back in the Gospels. How the individual who thought he was the greatest. Should humble himself and become the least. But what you're going to get here is a picture of delegation. And we found it very clearly back in the Old Testament. When Jethro approaches Moses and he says. Listen you can't continue day and night serving these people. They're going to wear you out. And that's true. And that's why Moses was able to delegate I think 70 men. And that pictures the Sanhedrin, that pictures the uh, early group of Jewish leaders who of course clashed with the Lord Jesus Christ. So here the apostles as a group are going to give instructions what to do. And also this term, it is not reason, it is not right, it is not appropriate that we should leave the word of God studying, No doubt, the Old Testament, the New Testament wasn't yet written, and serve tables. So it makes sense to allow these 12 individuals to delegate and choose people from within their own community let's call the early church for argument's sake the first church of jerusalem i mean twenty thousand people spread all over jerusalem gives you some idea as to how great this early church was and the logistics must have been incredible look at verse three please wherefore brethren look ye out among you seven men of honest report full of the holy ghost and wisdom whom we may appoint over this business brethren Look you out, or look out from among you seven men, not women, of honest report. There's your testimony, the hardest thing to have and the quickest thing to lose, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. So seven men are going to be called out from among their church, from the first church of Jerusalem. And at first glance, you might think to yourself, this could be in reference to deacons, well, I'm not so sure. I was reading First Timothy and Second Timothy and Titus this morning. I don't think a deacon is what is in reference here. In fact, these seven men—I'll get to that shortly—are going to have the sign gifts. They're going to do miracles. No deacon in First Timothy or Second Timothy or Titus did miracles. But what we can get from this piece of scripture is how these men are going to be chosen from within, not from without. Look at verse four. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry. Of the word. The early church had to be led by God fearing men, spirit filled individuals who were on their knees praying. And we know from church tradition how James, the Lord's half brother, was called Camonese because he was always praying and he was martyred for his faith. But it makes sense to allow the apostles to pray and to read the word of God, to study the scriptures, the Old Testament, because if you take those men out of the equation pre the completion of the New Testament, the whole thing is going to crash. And they want to pray and give themselves continually to the ministry. And that's why we are told in 1 Timothy how the elders are worthy of double honour. In fact, please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5, uh, verse 17. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honour, especially they who labour in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the labourer, is worthy of his reward. Some people say, there you are, you see. Paid pastors are entitled to be given double honour. But double honour doesn't mean double money. You were told back in Exodus 20 to honour your parents, which has no reference to money whatsoever. And yet here, you were told to give the elders, plural, not singular, double honour. So I think that's more in reference to respect, not money. But 18, the labourer is worthy of his reward. So you can get some financial connotation there. Uh, but more in reference to a gift, a love offering, uh, than a full-time salary. Please go back to Acts chapter 6, one more time from verse 4. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. No money involved there, and yet the early church had been given money from the sale of properties, so on and so forth, not for themselves, but to give to those that were in great need. And yet, if you look at many churches today, many pastors living in mansions, driving nice cars, going on holiday three or four times a year, having swimming pools, on of forth, and yet Paul told you to make your moderation be made known unto men. Look at verse 5, please. Acts 6, verse 5. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Perchorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed... They lay their hands on them. This is a clear picture of ordination. And here seven men have been called from within. And these seven men are going to be given the anointing to, first of all, take care of the administration of the widows. First one. And at least one of these seven individuals is going to have the Jewish apostolic sign gifts. So we do find very clearly here at least one individual outside of the apostles that could do signs and wonders. I guess Agabus would be the second and Philip would be the third. So this picture of ordination has been cited over the years amongst Catholics and Protestants to somehow affirm that we are to do the same. But it's true that when Timothy was called into the ministry, how Paul and the presbytery laid their hands on him, and his gift apparently was to preach, to teach. So we can't get a, we can't get away from the fact that laying on of hands certainly is found here in Acts 6.6. 6, and also in 1st Timothy, along with 2nd Timothy and Titus. But to make it mandatory to force it on a Bible-believing church is problematic. But it's found here, and as I said last time and the time before that, every part of Scripture has at least three aspects, historical, doctrinal, and eschatological, and on top of that, spiritual. So I think we could, on the one hand, teach us as being applicable for today, in a doctrinal sense, if you are a faithful Bible-believing brother, And you are recognized from within your fellowship. It could be three, it could be 30, it could be 3,000 strong or 300 strong. It doesn't really matter how large it is. As I say, it could be three strong, 30 strong, 300 strong or 3,000 strong. It makes no difference as to the size of the community. But if you are recognized from within and you should be, if you are a faithful brother, then others can come and put their hands on you. Let's not get beyond the context here of what we are reading here. Very much in reference, I say, to service and on top of that, preaching to the Jews. So, I won't say that these seven men are deacons, no, and I won't say they are elders either, because a deacon, according to First Timothy chapter 3, is a husband of one wife, and even his wife has to meet some credentials, whereas the elder, interestingly, from First Timothy chapter 3, his wife isn't even mentioned. So, I will just say this, that this group of individuals, this group of seven men, I think it's seven men we just looked at, are simply going to be raised up to do a special work. But you can... Carry that over to the Pauline epistles, as I say, in reference to being called into the ministry of being an elder or a deacon. And yet you won't find the one-man ministry in any part of the word of God. Verse 7. And the word of God increased. And the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Priests? Ananias? No. Caiaphas? No. Nicodemus? Yes. Joseph of Arimathea? Yes. Yes. Just pitch this for a moment. The early church are Jewish for the most part. The apostles are all Jews completely and they are preaching to their own people. That's how salvation works. You get saved and you preach to your own people. You start with your own friends and family, of course. Then you start with your work colleagues, your acquaintances, your neighbours, and you go further afield. But here we've got priests that are now being added to this group led by Jewish apostles. Because salvation is of the Jews. And you can just imagine the envy from the temple. That people are turning in droves to the first church of Jerusalem. If you don't mind me calling it that. And disciples are multiplying greatly. As I say, you're looking at about 20,000 perhaps around this point. In Acts chapter 6, which is less than two years after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's great to see priests getting saved. Not just Members of the laity, but members of the clergy. And this is in verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Great wonders and miracles, full of faith and power among the people. I love that so much. Stephen can't be a deacon because he's doing signs of wonders, he's doing miracles. And yet nobody in First Timothy, Second Timothy or Titus did any miracles. And that's why Paul said how he left Trophimus sick at Maletius, and he mentions... Timothy, a faithful brother who was also sick, unable to heal himself, and Paul couldn't heal himself. And yet, this man was going to do great miracles among the people, not in reference to those within the first church of Jerusalem, verse 1, verse 2, but in reference to those within his community. And I think that goes back to what I've been saying repeatedly that when you get saved, you preach to your own people. You know, we need more people to get out of their churches and go onto the streets to preach to people. Don't keep us to yourselves, and Stephen as I say, a great man of God, he's going to be the first church martyr, and some people say it wasn't John the Baptist, the first church martyr, well, John the Baptist was put to death pre the church, I mean, technically John was an Old Testament believer he got saved by an imputed righteousness, as did the apostles but he wasn't born again, in fact nobody was born again, according to Acts chapter 1, until the Holy Spirit came upon them in fact, if you look at Acts chapter 1 it speaks about the Holy Ghost coming down, uh from heaven to a place of the Lord Jesus Christ. But technically they weren't put into the body of Christ anyway. Until I think Acts chapter 2. Which was the day of Pentecost. But I'm very much focusing here on Stephen. Preaching in his community. And no doubt causing quite a commotion. Look at verse 9. Acts six nine, please. Then arose certain of the synagogue. Which is called the synagogue of the Libertines. And Cyrenians. And Alexandrians and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. Hostile Jews, very much probably infuriated from verse 7, priests departing from the temple, and also from the synagogues, in and around Jerusalem, and they are clashing with Stephen, and these hostile Jews are like Muslims, who are clashing with Christians all over the world. In fact, I was doing some research this week, that when Muhammad died, his Followers went up to Jerusalem and murdered 90,000 individuals. 90,000 individuals, probably Jews and Christians, and they very much lived by the sword and died by the sword. Yet here Stephen has no weapons. The Lord Jesus Christ had no weapons. In fact, he said, if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. And here Stephen is simply preaching the gospel. He's not forcing anybody to capitulate. He's not forcing anybody to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's simply preaching the gospel through the love that he got from Almighty God. And yet these hostile Jews are no doubt feeling threatened that they're going to lose their grip on the common man or woman in Judaism as the Muslims are in the Middle East. They don't like the idea of losing power. And this is in verse 10. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. I love that. They couldn't resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he, Stephen, spake. It's like the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time... People came up to him and tried to question him, tried to pull him down, tried to score a point over him. He would answer a question with a question. And never once did he ever say to his antagonists, you got me there, I'm not sure, I'll get back to you on that. No, he silenced their mouths every time. He answered a question with a question and on many times they couldn't come back to him. And here Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, a very similar anointing to what you get back in the Old Testament as well with their prophets Was able to shut their mouths. I love that. I think we need more of that today. And we were shown back in chapter 4. How the early church were praying for boldness. Great power and great boldness. They weren't praying to speak in tongues. They weren't praying to cast out devils. Although many of them could do that. And we'll discover that later as we go through the book of Acts. But they were praying for boldness. They were praying to do great things for the Lord. And we need that so desperately for today. Look at verse 11 please. Then they summoned men. Which said... We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Typical slur and godly people have always been hated from Noah to Jeremiah. This word subund is Old English. It gives the, the meaning of it simply means to find somebody who can be bribed. Somebody of a base sort, somebody of no integrity, somebody who can take a backhander, somebody who's going to be bribed or purge themselves in court. And as I say, what do men learn from history? Nothing whatsoever. Please turn to Matthew 28. I want to show you how this uh, picture of depravity is found in Matthew 28. Look at verse 11, please. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. The context is in reference to the Lord's resurrection. And they've had a watch put outside his tomb, put there by... Pilate, of course, and the Lord has been raised from the dead. The angel of the Lord has come down from heaven and sat on the stone. And I think the angel of the Lord in the new covenant is the Holy Spirit. Another panic sets in, what are we going to do? He's gone. We can't find the body. What are we going to do? This conspiracy, once again, goes back to the Old Testament, is now very much being seen in the new covenant. Look at verse 12, please. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers saying say ye his disciples came by night and stole him away while he slept there you are you see, they're going to bribe these soldiers these suborned men from Acts 6:11. they're going to bribe these Roman soldiers look at verse 14 and if this come to the governor's ears we will persuade him and secure you so they took the money and did as they were taught and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day what a despicable thing to do They couldn't dismiss the fact that he'd been resurrected. And what are they going to do? Well, they have to create a story and the best way to do it is to say that the apostles came by night, stole him away and if this comes to the governor's ears, which of course it would have done, we will secure you. We will speak up for you. Well, we're not told what happened to these uh, Roman soldiers, but there's every chance they would have been put to death. And yet the people behind them, the Jewish leaders, who should have known better, are no doubt uh, going to avoid being caught out in their Uh, conspiracy, they beat the rap as they say but don't worry a day's coming when the Lord is going to judge everybody by the word, thought and deed please go back to Acts chapter 6 and you see verse 11 one more time then they summoned men which said we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses, incorrect and against God, totally incorrect, false in fact it's heresy to say anything against uh, the Lord or Moses because the Lord Jesus Christ told us how the word of God Is inspired, it's been preserved. And if you speak against Moses or the word of God, you're speaking against God. Verse 12, And they stood up the people and the elders and the scribes, and came upon him, and caught him, and brought him to the council, and set up false witnesses, which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against his holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place, and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us, this holy place, As far as I'm concerned, in the new covenant, outside of the triune God and the word of God and the saved sinner, nothing is holy. Nothing whatsoever is holy outside of the triune God, the saved sinner and the word of God. But what do you expect? These men are liars, they are schemers, they've been paid by the apostate Jews to pretty much cause the death of an innocent man. And this term Jesus of Nazareth, of course, goes back to his time on the earth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. No, no, no. He came to fulfill the law. And yes, it's true. He mentioned in Matthew 24 how the temple would be destroyed. But here they are simply lying. They are simply concocting up this tissue of lies to put poor old Stephen to death. 15. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. This man had an internal peace which projected an external peace, and they couldn't miss it, he was totally at peace with what was occurring, he was ready for death, this great man of God, and we'll pick it up next time in chapter 7, what happens when they put this great man to death, but 15 verses will complete Acts chapter 6, the shortest chapter so far in the book of Acts, and uh, I could say much more about this man Stephen, but I'm out of time for today's broadcast, so next time we'll pick it up in chapter 7 and maybe I will be able to offer you some more thoughts as to this great man of God